Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. I invite you to turn in your Gospels, or in your Bibles, sorry, to the Gospel of Luke. We are going to be resuming our story of Luke in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. I think I have it incorrectly listed on the title as Luke 6, 27. So if you make sure you're in Luke 5, 27, we'll read together. It says, after this, and what does after this mean? Well, after everything that we just saw, Jesus forgiving a paralytic man, Jesus confronting the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who argued that he couldn't forgive sin. But of course, he says, what's easier to say? Rise and walk or your sins are forgiven. And then he has the man rise and walk and the man takes his mat and leaves. And people left glorifying God and amazement seized them all. And they said, we have seen extraordinary things today. So that's the context. Always critical to have the context. So it says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, Levi, we will know as Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And you might ask, well, why are there two names? It was very common in those days, given that it was a Jewish people who had once been conquered and ruled by a Greek system of governance, now ruled by a Roman system of governance, to have names that corresponded to the various languages that they might have spoken or to the different cultures of which they were a part. This happens nowadays. We have a neighbor who has one name, but she also has another name in a different language, and she'll be called both of those by her siblings. And so Matthew and Levi had an interchangeable name. Sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors, and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Think about what has happened in this story. And let's break down a little bit some of our preconceived notions. Recall that in the beginning of the text, it says that Jesus says to Levi, follow me. And it says, and and Matthew or Levi left everything and followed Jesus. But then later on, just two verses later, they're having a meal at Levi's house, and it's a very resplendent meal, large enough to feed many people who were probably gourmands, who knew their food. These were, after all, tax collectors and sinners, prone to uh, heavy drinking and heavy eating and, and the comparison of flavor and taste. So what did it mean that he left everything? We have to be very careful when we preach and teach about the disciples. We have a popular notion in our minds that in the moment of discipleship, when Jesus says, follow me, and people up and leave what they're doing and follow after Jesus, that there's not more things that they continue to do in their lives. 
or that their businesses or their households don't go on without them just because they followed after Jesus. I think sometimes we present so radical a view of discipleship when we view the 12 disciples that we forget that these were real men with real families and businesses and communities around them and things that they engaged in, whether they were good or evil things. And the process of discipleship for them didn't necessarily mean selling everything that they had in that moment and following after Jesus. It might have meant just following after Jesus for that time of teaching while still maintaining a household and a business that could support the ministry that they were doing. We, we don't know all of the contours of Matthew's path of discipleship. So if you're somebody, like we talked about a few weeks back when we talked about Peter, if you're somebody like Peter or here like Levi who follows after Christ but still feels in your heart, I've got to do this or I've got this business or this family to take care of, note that what Levi undergoes is a process of redeeming his life as it was to become something new. It wasn't necessarily casting off everything as though everything that he had done was bad. As a matter of fact, what happens next in the story is an example of the Lord redeeming something that was a regular part of Matthew's life that the Lord would use to advance his gospel in the nations. Matthew throws a party. This is a theme we're going to see a couple more times in the book of Luke because Jesus goes to that party. Matthew, now a follower of Jesus, wants other people to hear about Jesus. Maybe he doesn't know yet. Maybe he hasn't really learned yet that uh, I shouldn't, you know, have these gluttonous or drunken kind of parties. Maybe he hasn't reached that process in his discipleship where he recognizes that maybe even doing those parties is wrong, or maybe they're not wrong. Maybe he just needs to alter them so that they're done better. But critically, and this is what is of highest importance, Jesus does not once in this text rebuke Levi for inviting him to something that was known widely as being a place of sinners. He does not say to Matthew, oh, whoa, you're having a party, bud. You should know as my disciple now that we don't do that kind of thing. No. Rather, what Jesus does is walks into Matthew's life, Levi's life, and becomes a part of it and begins to redeem it from the inside out, not from the outside in. Too many times in our discipleship, we see a sinner who wants to be saved and we tell him, go get better first and then you can have Jesus in your life. Stop doing everything that you think is wrong and then and only then will Jesus think that you're good enough for him. That's a lie. It drives people from the church and from the community of the church. Instead, Jesus knows that there's going to be a party. And he goes in order to redeem it, in order to speak the truth, in order to love those people. And it calls into question, what are we really willing to do for the sake of the gospel? 
Are we so caught up in the notion that people need to be perfectly holy as soon as they come to know Jesus or else that we're unwilling to walk with them into their lives, even into places we might not otherwise feel comfortable or feel like this is what good Christians do or don't do? Give you an example of this. Let's say you came to know somebody through a ministry that you uh, had preached the gospel with and they accepted it. And they said, hey, I want you to come to the bar with me tomorrow night so you can meet all my buddies. 11 o'clock, we're going to be drinking beer and throwing darts and, you know, come on down. Would you go? Well, that's the equivalent of what Christ did. That is what he did. He went to, to, the, to the rave, to the nightclub, to the bar. He went to the place to where for too long Christians would stand outside and just kind of yell at the place and say you shouldn't exist. Christ is saying, well, this does exist. I'm going to go in there and go fishing for souls. So Christ enters into this house. And obviously... He's teaching the gospel because he is the gospel personified and all that he speaks is the word because he is the word. And you can imagine, as we have seen three chapters in a row, that every time when Jesus speaks, people view him as somebody who speaks with authority. How shocked those sinners and those bad people must have been. What do we mean by sinners and bad people? Uh, the Pharisees say you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Well, tax collectors were outcasts in the community of the Jews. Why? Because they served the Roman state on their behalf, taking money out of the Jewish community. So even though they would say they were Jewish and would practice Judaism, other Jewish people would have cast them out of their fellowship and treated them as outcasts because they were working for an oppressive foreign government. I've used this analogy before, but imagine that Russia conquered the United States during the Cold War, and I was a tax collector for the government of Russia, walking door to door to businesses in downtown Winston-Salem saying, pay up, the Russian government needs its money. But not only that, I had a habit of taking 10% from you, but only delivering 8% to the Russian government. So I was getting rich. Indeed, the food and the drink and the house where Jesus was, all that he would have consumed in that time, was basically purchased by evil money. So Jesus wasn't just encountering individuals. He was participating in something that others would have viewed as kind of a... a, a, a outcome of wickedness. It'd be like getting on the yacht for a dinner party of somebody who was uh, uh, an enemy of God and had an evil business, a casino owner or something like that, and yet you go on their yacht and have a dinner party with them. That's what Jesus is doing. And the sinners with which these people would have eaten, well, we're not entirely clear of what they are. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that he encounters people who are in prostitution. He encounters people uh, who uh, are all sorts of the dregs of society, whatever that might mean. 
But whatever it was, it was enough that the Pharisees just had to use the word sinners and people would know. I mean, you know how this works in our culture and our society. Whenever you're in a context and you see a group of people and you don't even need to identify them by what they are, you can just say, yeah, those people, you know, those ruffians, those bat ruffians, what an antiquated term, right? Like I'm, you know, old timey. But those, those, those scout, those bad people, those people, we don't mess around with those people. We don't go to their houses for meals. We don't invite them into our house, whatever it might be. Do you know that a pastor here in Winston-Salem, and I envy his fortitude in this, has a standing agreement with one of our downtown um, uh, funeral homes that he will do the funeral of anybody who is involved in a drug-related killing or was a drug dealer who otherwise has nobody to stand up at their funeral and speak the gospel. Do you know that he has purchased for himself the ability to speak the gospel to families and in places where I would never be able to go? Jesus enters into this house of sinners, this den of thieves, this place that if you saw a pastor go into, you might go, what is he doing? Why? I'm going to go to the elders. And he goes into that den of thieves, and he sits down with them, and he shares the gospel with them. And what happens? But of course... The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and their scribes grumbled at his disciples as though his disciples were his elders. Look at them trying to divide the church before it's even been formed. And they say, why do you eat and drink with these tax collectors and with these sinners? What are you doing in there? You're better than this. Aren't you, Peter, that fisherman? You have a business down the road. You're a good guy. I've seen you at the synagogue. I know you go to temple regularly. You're a man of faith. And your brother Andrew, he followed after John the Baptist, and he was pure in his ways. Wasn't he the one out in the wilderness telling us to repent of our sins? And yet here you are eating with sinners. Do you see how big this picture gets? There could be accusations of rank hypocrisy, of uncleanness, of sin, and who knows what happens at those meals. Jesus answered them. He doesn't wait for his disciples to answer because they might not have the answer. What does he say? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What is he saying by this? He's not saying that the righteous don't need to repent. If anything, he's going to go on and on for the next several chapters in Luke and look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and say, those people are wicked. They need to repent. He's not saying that they don't need to repent, but rather what he's doing is saying to those Pharisees, I'm not here for anybody who thinks they're perfect. I'm here for those who know they need to repent. I'm here for those whose lives are in the muck and in the mire. I'm here for those who do not presume perfection, but rather know only imperfection and know their need for something better. After all, the perfect person never needs to repent, does he? The one who thinks he's morally righteous, the one who thinks that in all of his grandeur he can 
put on his tie. I decided to be very pastoral for Mother's Day and wear a tie. But you can imagine someone like me looking very stereotypically like a pastor standing outside of a bar or a nightclub shouting, shut it down, you terrible people, and wondering why maybe a parishioner comes out and saying, what were you doing in there? Rather than saying, let's get in there, let's sit down and let's save those people. Because they are sinners just the same as me. Because they are broken just the same as me. Because I know my sins. And they are many. And so I need a Savior just the same as they. Jesus is looking at the scribes and at the Pharisees. And is essentially saying to them that you're too good for God. You are holier than the scriptures. You obviously don't need me because you have all your moral perfections. Rather, I'm here for these people who know they're not good enough for God, who feel their brokenness. Just the other day, I was in a car ride with a man that we have worked with in this church, that we love, who's been a part of this church, and he said something funny. He said, Pastor, I'm, I'm trying to speak, but all I can think of are some curse words that I want to say, and I feel so bad. I shouldn't curse around a pastor. Y'all, I want to save people that feel like all they know are curse words. Like, I want to save people like that. I told him, Brother, just speak. I'm not here to make you morally perfect. I'm here to point you to Jesus. In your life, you're going to have people, and it might be your kids, it might be your grandkids. And that's where it gets really painful. It might be colleagues at work. It might be friends from childhood. It might be people that you run into just in your daily life. People who pursue a path of unrighteousness that takes them down to the darkest corners, down into the deepest parts. It takes them into drug abuse. It might take them into uh, uh, all sorts of perversions in how they choose to live their lives. It will take them to a place to where they are broken. And when they're finally ready to talk with you or listen to the gospel, you will have a choice to make. And the choice to make is, is I'm going to tell them to be better or am I going to show them because they are bad, so bad that Jesus took all of their badness on the cross. That in fact they can't get better on their own. Am I going to tell them they better act right or am I going to tell them that they need Christ? And that Christ will make them righteous. Do you see the difference? What if you went into the doctor's office the other day and you had a disease? Let's say you knew your body was riddled with cancer. And the doctor only had one question for you. Are you sick? And what if you, who had worked out your whole life and had been a healthy person your whole life and never smoked, never drank, never eat red meat, you always did all the right things, avoided carcinogens, exercised daily, walked all the time, ran, you ran marathons, you were the picture of good health, but your body now had cancer through and through, and the doctor says, are you sick? And in your pride, knowing how healthy of a person you are, you say, no, I have worked out my whole life. I'm the very picture of health. And the doctor said, okay, have a good day. You would go home as sick as you were when you came in 
and die because of your pride. Jesus is saying, I came for people who aren't too proud to be saved. I came for people who aren't too proud to admit that they are sick and in the muck. Some of us who were raised in the church, we've heard the stories from childhood. We've tried to be good all our lives, and we think that that is enough, that we've earned our way into God's favor. My friends, you are just as sick as the sinners that Jesus knew. You are just as wicked in God's sight as the worst person that pops into your mind right now. You are just as far from God by birth as the very evilest individual that pops into your brain in this very moment. And you have just as much a need of a Savior today after 30 or 60 or 80 years of going to church as you did the day that you were born. And there's only one hope, and that is repentance and faith, which leads us to receive grace. I am a sinner I believe in your good news, Jesus. You are my Lord. Will you save me? And he does. If you're too proud to say that statement, then you are the healthy man who has cancer all through his body. If you are too churched to need Jesus, you're going to find in the end that you're only going to have church and no salvation. Today's the day. Now is the moment that you can come to that giant table where sinners eat with Jesus. We tend to think of this moment as being something unique in the life of Christ. Here's Jesus sitting at a table with all these sinners and wicked people and tax collectors. But do you know there's no substantive difference None between that table and the upper room where he sat down for the Lord's Supper with his 12 disciples. They were just as much the sinners. They were just as much in need of a Savior as any of those sinners and tax collectors that gathered at Matthew's house. Peter, just moments later, would deny Jesus three times. Judas would go on to sell out Jesus that very night. They would scatter. They would be afraid. Not a one of them would have faith that would even carry them through the night. So as we look at the Lord's Supper, when Jesus sat down with sinners, we recognize that it's, it's a sinner's table. The only grace of that table is the Savior who's sitting among sinners. It's not a table of perfect people. It's not a table of great leaders in the church. That would come later. That would come after they're filled with the Holy Spirit and with fire and they go and preach the gospel. That night when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, what he was doing was giving grace to sinners, not to saints, not to perfect people. That's why scripture says, before you take of the cup and of the bread, examine yourself, not for your moral perfections, but for your moral failures. 
He's saying, stop and remember why you need my flesh and my blood in the first place. Because you're broken. Because you're a sinner. None of us brings anything to the table of Christ except whatever we have received from Christ. Instead, what we bring is our broken selves and an acknowledgement that our brokenness only finds healing in the broken body of Christ and in the shed blood of Christ. I hope you've gathered the elements before you. I want you to take a moment now and we'll just have a moment of silence where you encounter your sins and your need for salvation. Don't try to lay your perfections before Jesus. Lay your faults before him so that he can take them on the cross for you. Let's take a few moments. I invite you to take in your hand as you think the bread. Go ahead and take a piece of bread in your hand. And as you hold this bread in your hand, I invite for you to consider that this broken bread, whatever you might have in front of you, is the cost of everything you ever have and will do wrong. But it's also the cure. Meaning in this bread is both a picture of how bad you are, but also how good God is is your brokenness went on to Jesus and Jesus would say this is my body broken for you let us partake together And as we consider the cup, I've been reading in Leviticus. And there's a curious, consistent rule in Leviticus. And all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament Jews didn't drink or eat blood. Ever. In Leviticus, it says, if anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. 
Why would God do that? Well, it's because he would say that life is in blood and life belongs to me. And so when you sacrifice your animals, you would take the blood of the animal and splatter it on the altar. Or during the Exodus, they put it on their doorposts as a mark because life belongs to God. The idea of drinking blood would be anathema to the people of God. You simply didn't do it. It was a wicked thing. And yet Jesus, when he sits down with sinners, recognizing that the only way that they will have life is if he gives them his life through his own blood, tells them what? This cup, which is my blood, is the cup of the new covenant. So when you drink this, what we are seeing, what we are remembering, what we are experiencing afresh even, is the idea that God in Jesus not just broke Jesus' body to take our brokenness, but poured out his blood to give us life because life is in the blood. And so the life that we live, we live by faith, not by our own effort. Just as in the broken cracker in the body of Jesus was the cost and the cure for our sin, here is the possibility of our new life. Stop trying to be perfect. Instead, accept God's perfections. This is the cup that he has given us. Let us partake together. As we end today, we have to shift to talk about our future. Legally, we could have had church today. I don't know if you knew that, but it is the truth. The governor's phase one order specifically exempted churches, or I should say gatherings for worship, from the proscription on mass gatherings. So we could have all gathered in this room. Legally, there is not even a requirement, only a recommendation, that you social distance. In no world could we have met here this morning and had the police burst in and arrest all of us and haul us away. So please, have no fear when I say that we could have done that. And don't blame the government on the decision for us not to meet today because that was your elders and your governing board. We met on Friday night, your elders and your governing board and myself, and we prayed over what to do and sought the Lord's wisdom, and we had a great time of unified discussion. We felt like now was not the time to just rip open the doors and let everyone attend. We also felt like when we do decide to do that, that we would have people wear masks so that if we sing together, which we long to do, we would not be projecting onto each other 
which I'm told can actually go more than six feet, can go 10 feet, 20 feet, if you're Micah, 30 or 40 feet. What we want to do is be wise. We want to love one another, and a mask can be an expression of love. Again, there's no government that's going to make us do it. And we won't be arrested if we do, but instead we want to love one another, which is the second greatest commandment. So how are we going to do this? What does our future hold? Well, we hope to have our first service here in this room on June 7th. That's a tentative date as we see how the next few weeks go along. We want to see the numbers in North Carolina and in Forsyth County. We want to see if that significant outbreak in Wilkesboro spreads to other communities or has been contained. And as we keep an eye on those numbers, we are going to begin refreshing this building and this space to have it ready so that when we do meet, we can enjoy a time of worship that is sanitized, safe, spread out, and healthy. We also want you to know, though, that we are not going to end our live stream. We might move our camera. Right now, the camera, which is hard for you to see, is only about eight feet from the very front of the stage, smack in the middle, and it kind of is obnoxious and has to be held up by chairs. It's quite the rig. If we were to take that camera and set it over on, say, near the front row to my right or what would be the room's left side, you'd have an upward shot, an angled shot that would look like you were sitting in the service as part of the service, and it would feel much more natural. My preaching would shift from preaching at the camera to preaching at the congregation, and the camera and you at home would be a part of it. That's not going to end. In fact, we're going to aim to keep that going on as long as we meet as a church. We have people that have begun to join this church from other states and, of course, we always want to say hi to the Solvigs in Guinea. Hey, guys, they worship with us every Sunday. So we're not going to stop that for any reason. We love that. Now, the week before we meet in person, again, June 7th is the target date, we are going to look at and consider and pray over and see if it's feasible to have a Saturday outdoor worship time on May 30th. And that would be out in our field, and people could set up some tents to cover over and have shade and bring blankets, and we can arrange ourselves around to be safe, and we would enjoy a time of worship, fellowship. But we have a lot of thinking to do for that. We have to discuss, what do you do about kids who don't know social distancing and certainly don't want to respect it? How can we make sure that even in our singing that we're being safe, whether it's indoors or outdoors? There's a lot of questions yet to be answered, but I want you to know we are asking those questions. We're praying over them and seeking the Lord's direction. And you might see other churches make other decisions, and that's okay. We believe in the sanctity of the local body of believers. And so the Alliance, as, an, as a national movement and as a district movement, has said, we trust the Spirit moves in elder boards and governing boards. And so if another church down the road opens up earlier, you could tell me about it. I would love to hear about it. I'd love to hear what their guidelines are. 
I'd love to see what they're saying about it and who they're inviting. And if you have thoughts, if you say, well, I won't attend unless I can't wear a mask, or I uh, will be attending as soon as those doors are open, or I'm going to pray about it and think about it, let me know. A difference of opinion does not indicate a difference of a spirit or a lack of love for one another. Noisy systems are okay in the church, and this is a noisy moment in the history of the church with lots of different feelings about what we should and should not do. Well, I don't want to go on too long on that. I want you to know we have a target, June 7th. We have an outdoor target, which is May 30th. We have things that we're going to do before then to help prepare our building. We might have an outdoor work day for people to come help us clean up the outside of the building. We might have small group fellowship. The youth and the children's ministries are going to work directly with parents to have the conversations on how and when they should open up. All of this is going to go on in the coming weeks, and I want you to be a part of that conversation. Our goal is one day to meet in the flesh without masks, to join as one body, and to sing full-throated of the glory of God. But until that day, we're going to see things come in steps and stages and fits and starts and maybe stops and maybe even steps back. But as long as we have the spirit of love and of hope and a focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and of our love for one another, as long as those remain central, whether we agree or not, or whether we have the perfect timeline or not, we will have a unified body, which is the body of Christ. Thank you for being with us today. I miss you very much. God bless you and keep you. Bless the mothers among us and keep them. And have a beautiful week ahead. Amen.